0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. we got a great episode for you today. A lot of questions from non-Catholics that were taken today, all being directed toward Bishop Robert Barron, who's joining us from Santa Barbara. Bishop Barron, welcome. Hey, Brandon, how you doing? Doing very well. You know, I wanted to ask you about something. We've got a lot of comments and emails about this, and that's your pectoral cross. Oh. And I know that sounds strange, <laughs> right. but a lot of people see your pectoral cross. Usually, when you wear a, a coat, it's tucked into the little pocket there. Right. And people send us emails all the time saying, Why does he tuck it in? Why doesn't he leave it out? What's the big deal? Uh, talk to
1: us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I've been amazed at that. And maybe it's because I'm one of the most visible bishops, I suppose, in America, because I do all these videos, you know. Uh, but when I was growing up, watching bishops, and if you take a look at most photographs of bishops in their business suit, that's what we all do—we tuck the crossway. Now, let me just say this right off the bat: it has nothing to do with you know hiding the cross or I'm ashamed of the cross. And when people say that, I just you know kind of sigh in exasperation. Let me show you something. And see, today I, we're in the little studio on Santa Barbara. It's super hot today, and we have no air conditioning in here, so I don't have my coat on and my sleeves up. So. Uh, here's this cross, right? Now this thing was designed to be worn with a cassock. So when a bishop wore a long cassock with the row of buttons, you take the cross and you'd hook it onto one of the buttons, and it would be at your chest. Hence, it's called a pectoral cross, right? Well, now you don't wear a cassock; you wear a business suit. Look what happens: the pectoral cross becomes like an abdominal cross. It comes down here. Now you just have a, a coat on, and and the cross is just swinging free. Now. Anyone that's ever written about this, here's my challenge. Get a long chain like this, and get a kind of heavy metal cross at the end of it, and just make your way through your day. I guarantee you, you'll understand why bishops tuck it in the pocket. It be, it starts swinging back and forth, hitting things. I, I've lost—not it not lost them permanently, but crosses have come right off the chain because it hooks on something as I'm getting up from a table. You lean down to have dinner, and you clink it into a glass. So you'll see it's purely a pragmatic issue, that it's just easier and less dangerous to tuck it into the coat pocket. Now, I'll admit it's probably not the ideal that the great symbol of the Episcopal office becomes a, a little bit of a chain that you can see. But that's why bishops do it. Another thing, too, we're using a, a boom mic today, but normally I've got a little mic uh, here you know around the lapel or something. If this cross is like this and I'm moving around, it's scraping against the microphone. That's it. That's why I do it. If for example, like look on, on YouTube when I gave the talk at Google or look even all the Sunday sermons I do, when I can stand still at a podium, fine, then I, I will I'll take it out and and, and display it because it's not going to be clunking around. But I don't know, like even now, can you see it as I'm sitting down? I'm not sure. You can. Uh, anyway, my, my short answer is it's pure pragmatics. It's got nothing to do with uh, uh, being ashamed of the cross or hiding it away. Okay, so that's the, that's the reason. All right, I hope that's clarifying for some people
0: and maybe puts an end to that yeah. uh, question. Let's turn to another more exciting bit of news, and that's that we just announced publicly that we received this extremely large grant for $1.7 million from the John Templeton Foundation to support efforts in debunking the myth- mythical conflict between faith and science. Um, this is a huge deal for the Word on Fire Institute, for Word on Fire.
1: Talk a little bit about this grant and some of the things we're hoping to do with this money. Super pleased about this. As you know, you know I've been talking about this for years. I don't claim to be a great expert in the religion science uh, matter. That's not my area of specialty. But I know from all of our statistical studies that it's a huge stumbling block for a lot of the nuns, the unaffiliated. And I've been sort of preaching and, and uh, banging that drum for a long time. So I was really pleased when uh, the Templeton people, I think, saw the um, opportunity to give us the funds to allow us to make videos, to sponsor a national conference, to bring in nationally known speakers to address precisely this issue. So over the next—I think it's three years, Brandon, as as we kind of move through that grant— we'll be doing all those things, I just said. I'll be doing a, a series of shorter videos. We'll have longer talks from great experts. I'm very excited about the possibility of this national conference precisely around this issue. Heck, I'd love it if we could get a lot of the religion and science teachers in Catholic schools to come. Here are some of the best people on this topic. Because if this is a reason why people are disaffiliating, it is a really, really bad reason. It's not a good justification for abandoning the faith. And so delighted, delighted, delighted that the Templeton folks have given us this grant. Very grateful to them. And I think it will help the church in a lot of ways. So again, all this great work is going to be happening inside the
0: Word on Fire Institute. So if you want to stay in the loop on all the faith science resources we're going to be putting out, visit wordonfire.institute, join the Institute, and you'll start seeing these courses and videos and eventually the national conference roll out soon. All right, Bishop, let's hop into these questions. Again, um, every now and then we do a big roundup Q&A where we throw a bunch of questions your way. and Today, the theme is non Catholic. So, all the questions we're going to hear are coming from people that are either Protestant or atheist or agnostic or other religions. We've got a lot of good ones lined up. So, the first one here comes from David. He's a Pentecostal chaplain in Michigan. He's got a friend converting to Catholicism and wants your help making sense of it all. Here's his question
1: Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is David from Michigan. I'm a Pentecostal Protestant chaplain, and I have an ever growing love and respect for my Catholic brothers and sisters. A friend I led to Christ in high school recently converted to Catholicism, and I am happy for him. What opportunities are there for me to continue to work with Catholics and foster greater unity and joint efforts within the body of Christ? Thank you. Good. Thank you for your, your ministry, and thank you for your good, uh, you know, healthy ecumenical attitude there. I'd say, first of all, find those points of contact. I think you're already doing that, but Keep finding the points of contact. So it's easy enough to name you know, where we differ, Protestants and Catholics, but there are so many areas where we're uh, seeing things eye to eye, especially when we're up against a common enemy, which is modern secularism. So I think to, to bring Protestants and Catholics together around those common concerns, to find all the things that we hold you know, biblically and doctrinally uh, in common, that's a great place to start. Also, I'd say to you, um, you know, keep exploring Catholicism. Um, so you're attracted to different aspects of it, or you see it alive in, in some of the young people you're serving. Good. Ask them what it is. What it is that they find so intriguing about Catholicism. Keep looking. Keep searching. Keep your mind open. Um, and especially keep your eyes on the common points, I think, are, are good ways forward. What do you think, Brandon? You're someone who's gone from the Protestant to the Catholic world. What strikes yeah. you?
0: I'd echo all those same things. I'd also emphasize there's a number of bridge figures, and I'm thinking here of people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and some of the uh, Word on Fire heroes that speak uh, eloquently and convincingly to both Protestants and Catholics. It might be an idea to maybe read one of those books together and then from each of your different approaches discuss uh, their writings. Uh, I know when I was converting from evangelicalism to Catholicism, those were the writers I was reading that helped make the, the path easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an idea. Good. Good. All right. Let's move next to Carol. She's a Protestant in Maryland, and she has a very common question you'll hear a lot of times from non-Catholics about why we spend so much time talking about and praying to other figures besides uh, Jesus and the most holy Trinity. So here's her question. Thank you, Bishop Barron. I am Carol, a Protestant from Maryland. My top concern is the First Commandment and Catholics spending disproportionate amount of attention on Mary and the saints, such as Michael helped me in battle, rather than focusing time on and praying directly to the only source of power, the Trinity. Thank you.
1: Yeah, good. It's a question that goes back, of course, to the 16th century. It's been around for all these uh, all these years. Uh, you know, to your first point, though, and I'm glad you mentioned the first commandment. There's nothing at all against the first commandment because Catholics don't worship anyone but God. The Trinitarian God is the sole uh, object of our worship. Whatever we give to the saints, including to Mary, is a type of reverence. Um, Mary gets a sort of hyper reverence, we'd say, but. Uh, we never move into worship. If someone moves into that stance, they are indeed violating the most basic of the commandments. So it's not that. Second observation is this. I don't think it's disproportionate. Think of every single time a Catholic prays. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity we're invoking. Think of all of our liturgical and sacramental expressions. They're all done under the aegis of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the, the Mass, all of the prayers, are directed precisely that way. So whatever happens, happens under the aegis of the Trinity. Third observation. See, what's the Trinity's job in terms of, of us? So the Trinity exists in itself as this great you know, supreme value. But in terms of us, look, the Father sent the Son all the way to the limits of God-forsakenness so as to gather us back into the life of the Holy Spirit. The trinity is all about the work of salvation. Who are Mary and the saints but those that we recognize as having been, to a very high degree, sanctified? right? They've been trinitized. Therefore, the light that they have is simply reflective light. Whatever glory they have is a glory that comes from the great work of the trinity. Therefore, it's not competitive. And I've talked a lot about that, and I I put my finger on it as a major point of demarcation. I think Protestants tend to think, in my judgment, too much of the God-world relationship as a competitive one, that that the more glory you give to the world, the less you're giving to God. No, on the contrary, I would say. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And and fully alive here means sanctified. And so as you look at a saint, you look at the Blessed Mother or a great saint, and you say, oh, I give honor to this figure— Well, ultimately, I'm giving honor to God. It's like saying, look at the moon, how lovely that is. Well, yeah, it's lovely, but only because of the sun, right? So I wouldn't put it, I'm speaking as a Catholic, in that competitive framework. But I'd say every time we honor one of the saints, we are indeed worshiping the Trinity. You know, I had the insight, Bishop, during my conversion process, that
0: this type of argument can also, for the Protestant, cut against honoring or petitioning your Protestant friends. When you ask sure. your Protestant friends to pray for you, yeah. why not just ask Christ the Lord mm-hmm. to help you? Why go through intermediaries? So the same sort of logic can work against your Protestant friends, but yeah. we would all acknowledge there's nothing wrong with asking other people to pray for right. us or respecting a Protestant pastor. So it's okay then to
1: respect the holiest exemplars of faith. God delights in using secondary causes, is Thomas Aquinas' language I've always liked. And so, yeah, God delights when we uh, invoke the saints to intercede for us. It doesn't compete with him. He delights in that.
0: All right. We've heard from a couple of good Protestant listeners of the show. Next, we're going to turn to a non-Christian listener. His name is Justin. He's in Arizona. He's thinking about going from being a non-believer in Christianity to a Catholic, but he's wondering how this is going to shape his family dynamics. So Mm -hmm. here's his question.
1: Hi, Bishop. My name is Justin, and I'm in Arizona. I'm currently contemplating a conversion to Catholicism from a non-Christian background. Your work has been extremely valuable in helping me through this process. The big question I'm struggling with right now is, what will my relationship with my wife be like if I convert and she does not? Therefore, if I am saved, but the person I care deeply about is not? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's kind of a two-pronged question. I address the second part first. I, I wouldn't put it in terms of saved, not saved. I mean, because the question of someone's salvation is finally up to God, and it does not follow that if, let's say, your wife does not become a Catholic, she's not saved. Uh, I don't know. That's up to God. You know, and that's a matter of, of her own conscience and so on. So I, I wouldn't press that so much. You know. Now, at the same time, I think, yes, I, I'd be delighted if your wife too would come over to the fullness of truth in the Catholic faith. I think, yes, it would make your marriage, uh, I'm sure, and your family life uh, easier. Having said that, you know, to have patience. The, the Lord's working on you, maybe drawing you toward the Catholic faith. You know, in his own time, in her own time, I'm thinking there of the Holy Spirit and, and your wife, uh, will the same thing happen? I mean, possibly. Maybe you've got to you know, be patient with that. I, I don't think you know, browbeating or proselytizing is probably a good idea. But I think allowing your wife to see the difference it's made in your own life. Uh, if she sees greater joy in you and greater um, sense of purpose, uh, she sees an increase in virtue in you, I think that will be very attractive uh, to her. So I would be patient with the work of the Spirit. I'd be patient with your wife. Um, live your own catholicism if, if in fact you go that route live it as boldly and joyfully as possible and then um, let the spirit work you know another bit of practical advice go get scott and kimberly Hahn's book called rome's sweet home the story of ultimately both their conversions from a pretty uh, devout protestantism to catholicism but my point here is that scott's conversion happened first and it was only, I think, Brandon, it was like three or four years later, maybe, that Kimberly uh, became a Catholic. Now, the two of them were one of the great Catholic couples in the country. But read that book to see Scott's patience, uh, his own struggles with that, Kimberly's struggles with it. Uh, it's a very illuminating book that way. You know, another good one,
0: Bishop, that uh, just came to mind, given the time frame there of three years in between their conversions is uh, G.K. Chesterton and his wife, Frances, he famously uh, converted to Catholicism. And it was three years later that his wife, Frances, converted as well. And that whole story is wonderfully recounted in my friend Nancy Brown's book titled The Woman Who Was Chesterton. That one might be a good one for your wife to read, because it shows what was going on in the wife's mind as Her husband was converting to the church. In fact,
1: didn't he, if I remember right, Brandon, didn't Chesterton himself hesitate a bit because he knew his wife wasn't ready and it was bothering him that they couldn't, that that would drive a wedge between them. But then finally in 1922, I think he does become a Catholic. But then some years later, she joins him. Yeah, that'd be very helpful, I think.
0: All right. Great question, Justin. Next up, we move to David. He's in Michigan, and he's got a couple questions about saints and how Mm. Catholics decide who gets to be canonized. Here it is.
1: Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is David, and I'm from Holland, Michigan. I have two questions regarding canonization. Number one, why does the church not consider non-Catholic Christians for sainthood? Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes to mind. To me, canonizing a fellow Christian of a different faith tradition would also serve as an ecumenical statement to a fractured body of believers. Number two, are Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day currently being considered for sainthood? Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, answer the second one first. Dorothy Day is. For some years now, she's been under consideration. Um, I'm not sure exactly where all that she, stands. She's
0: a servant of God,
1: so they've, yeah. they've actively
0: opened up the the exploration of the cause.
1: Yeah, so that's been some years, and she would be indeed a candidate. Not Merton, as far as I know. He's not being considered for uh, canonization. Uh, to your first question, and you know, I'm glad you mentioned Bonhoeffer, who's a great hero of mine. I, I don't know if everyone knows the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor and theologian of a very high caliber, who also um, at the end of the Second World War was arrested because he was part of a, of an attempt to remove Hitler. And he died uh, at the very end of the war, just before Hitler's suicide, I think in April of 1945. Dies as a, as a great martyr to the Christian faith. And so a lot of uh, Christians, you know, Catholics and non-Catholics admire Bonhoeffer immensely, and I wouldn't hesitate for a minute to say he was a person of extraordinary uh, virtue and exemplar in many ways. A theologian whom I admire too, you know. Now, having said all that, I'd make this observation: uh, Indeed, the Catholic Church says when someone, when we're considering uh, sanctity, whether they should be canonized, we'll look at um, their virtue. Is that person a person of heroic virtue? they display the natural and supernatural virtues in an extraordinary, heroic way. We also look for evidence of their um, locale, if you want, in heaven. And the sign of that would be miracles that are wrought through their intercession. So if a saint is prayed to and a miracle happens, that's an indication that they're in heaven. So those two things. But I'd add a third that maybe isn't as well known. When someone's under consideration for canonization, they will find all the writings and teachings of that person that they can find. And they will be poured over very carefully to see if there's anything doctrinally problematic in their teaching. I'll give you an interesting example. You know, St. Faustina uh, —of course, now a saint— uh, but was her canonization was resisted for decades because people thought in her diary there were some doctrinally questionable elements. Well, it was Carl Wojtyla who deeply admired her, becomes John Paul II. He pointed out, to their satisfaction, that a lot of the doubt came from a bad translation from Polish into, I think, Italian. And he clarified, no, it's not bad doctrine once you understand the Polish. And so once they got past that, she was indeed uh, canonized. My point is, another consideration is rectitude of doctrine. We don't think —and this is the common etiquette today —to say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good person, right? As long as you're a morally heroic person. Well, we don't hold to that. We think doctrine does matter. If you're going to hold someone up as a great hero, as, as, a, as a pure exemplar of, uh, of the Catholic faith, doctrine matters. And so, maybe at the risk of being overly blunt, um, someone who's holding to Protestant positions, that we would say, not in every regard— there's a lot of points of contact— but in some ways is doctrinally deficient, I don't think we would readily hold up as a great hero of of the Catholic faith. Um, You know, what comes to mind here is John Henry Newman. Some people today especially read his famous autobiography, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. And over hundreds of pages, he'll tell you how he got from achingly high Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism. And I think people today might be tempted to say, well, I mean, come on, it's just like a little tiny leap, and does it really matter that much? Well, it mattered so much to Newman that he thought it was a question of his eternal salvation. He said, if I perceive that Roman Catholicism is the correct doctrine, and I don't become a Catholic, that's a moral failing on my part, and it'll, it'll compromise my salvation. That's how strongly he felt about doctrinal rectitude. Now, mind you, I'm not passing judgment on anybody, because that's a question ultimately for God and the conscience and all that. But to say someone's a saint of the Church, I think it's not just their moral heroism. It's also their doctrinal clarity, and that's probably why.
0: Next up we're going to Utah where we're going to hear from Isaac. He was raised in a Mormon household and he's wondering about something we talked about in a past episode in regards to spiritual senses or spiritual feelings and how that correlates to the Mormon sense of the the burning in the bosom that you might expect upon reading the Book of Mormon. So here's his question. This is Isaac from Utah. In episode 205, you said that a feeling of deep joy and spiritual excitement is something you've learned to trust as spiritual guidance. I was raised Mormon and they have a very similar description of how the spirit guides people to believe in Mormonism. From a Catholic perspective, how do you distinguish between these spiritual experiences that lead people to wildly
1: different conclusions about faith? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Cause look, even broaden the thing out to people from uh, non-Christian religions, a Buddhist or a Hindu that has a very powerful inner you know, conviction. Let me state it positively first. Uh, Can we recognize all across the religions of the world and the philosophies and so on something like a generic spiritual sense? Yeah, it seems to me. Whether it's Friedrich Schleiermacher's uh, Sense and Taste of the Infinite, whether it's this this um, warming of the heart you know, that Wesley talks about, whether it's what you're describing in the Mormon context, whether it's a high mystical experience in a Hindu or Buddhist context, is it naming something real that, that is of God? And I, I wouldn't hesitate to say, yeah, it, it, it is. It's some deep spiritual intuition. So correct as far as it goes. It's not the only indicator that we have. If it were, you'd be right. we say, well, look, everyone's got roughly the same spiritual experience, just gets accented in different ways. So you say it with a Buddhist accent, I'll say it with a Catholic accent. Read someone like Joseph Campbell, you know, whom I do admire. Uh, but Campbell has that approach. You know, he's a comparative mythologist. He would say, there's one great monomyth, one great spiritual story being told, and you know, there's a Hindu accent and a Christian and a Jewish and a Muslim accent, but it's all the same story. Well, no. <laughs> I would say there is a certain commonality you can find among the great religious traditions. But discernment doesn't end with that. See, some of that goes back—I mentioned Schleiermacher. It goes back to that period when— people were so hungry to get past religious warring and there was an awful lot of religious warfare after the Reformation that they were just trying to find something that will bring us together and so from that time to the present day, think of the new age that's a very attractive um, option. you know come deep down, aren't we all kind of feeling and believing and intuiting the same thing? Well my answer is no there there are, yes, certain elemental, universal experiences, but there's much more to determining religious truth than that. We have to bring in all sorts of other criteria before we say, yes, that's correct. Uh, One distinction here is Augustine's famous one between what he called religio and vera-religio. So there's religion, kind of a generic spirituality. And then there's vera religio, which is true religion. Well, how do you determine that? Now, all sorts of other factors have to come into play. You know, The doctrine of the church, the witness of the community, the scripture itself, uh, uh, the, the uh, theological reasoning of the great tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is ingredient in the process by which I finally say, yes, I believe this to be true. Take John Henry Newman's uh, illative sense here, right? All the different elements that come together. So my point is, it's much more than the experience you're talking about. As real as that is, and as possibly universal as that is, there's much more to it than simply that common experience.
0: All right. I think we got time for maybe a couple more, Bishop. This one is from Dustin. He's in Houston. He's asking about apostolic succession, which is good since you're a bishop, you're part of this chain of apostolic succession, so there's no one better you could ask. Um, here's his question.
1: Good evening, Bishop. Uh, my name is Dustin uh, from Houston, Texas. I had a question about apostolic succession. Uh, what is it exactly? What's being passed down from the apostles to the bishops? Uh, also, how does that affect small rural churches in the early days, which weren't founded by an apostle? Uh, Thank you so much, uh, and God bless. Yeah, thanks for that. It's a good question. Um, To me, it's one of the most beautiful features of, of the Catholic sensibility, namely that it all goes back to this little band of brothers gathered around Yeshua from Nazareth. And I'm trying to state this as kind of particularly as I possibly can. Christianity is not primarily a set of ideas, though ideas contribute to it. It's not a philosophy, though it can use philosophy. Um, It's not an ideology, though it can be expressed theologically. Christianity is a relationship to a person, right? It's a relationship to this Jesus, it's a friendship with him. And so it's born in this little band that he gathered around himself, the head of which was a man named uh, Rocky, Jesus called him, right? Peter. Kephas, Petros, you're you're Rocky, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Not on ideas, primarily, not on a set of doctrines, though those can follow from it. But on this fellow, Peter, who knows me and knows my heart and, and knows me personally, intimately, my friend, Rocky, I'm going to base it on him and the band of brothers around him. The Church comes from that apostolic band, who then passed on —and here's your question— I'd say their authority to teach, but more importantly, they passed on their intimate friendship with Jesus. So their first successor said, I got this not from, from speculating philosophically. I got this from friends of Yeshua who told me about him and shared with me what it was like to be with him, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, to to walk with him. They, in turn, passed that same authority and intimacy onto their successors. Onto their successors. Finally, to very unworthy people like me in the year 2020, and, you know, I, maybe I told this story before, Brandon, but when I was doing the retreat before becoming a bishop, you have to do a week-long retreat. And under the guidance of my director, my good friend, Father Larry Hennessy, the, the image that stayed most powerfully with me was successor of the apostles. And I don't mean that primarily in a juridical sense, like, look at me, I'm a successor of the apostles. It was the way I've been trying to describe it, that becoming a bishop was being drawn into that intimacy, with Jesus, that friendship with him that's been passed on. Now, to your point about the the rural churches, go back to that seed if you want, that original group around Jesus, is the whole church came from that group, right? That, that as it spread around the world, some of these apostles indeed went to given cities. We associate, you know, of course, Peter with Rome and we associate Mark with um, Alexandria, et cetera, et cetera. But but the whole faith came, ultimately, from that little band who passed on their teaching and authority to successors. So in that way, there's nothing that escapes the apostolic, the apostolicity of the Church. Which is, again, why among those marks of the Church, we have, indeed, apostolicity. It's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, because it's all conditioned by that intimate band of friends around Jesus. To me, that's one of the most attractive features, really, of Catholicism, that that we're so uh, clear on that point, we're so unapologetic on that point, and that the bishops today, as you see these, look, we're all sinners, we're all flawed people, but through God's grace and the imposition of hands. I think of the moment when I was ordained through the hands of Archbishop um, Jose Gomez. Well, he had been ordained a bishop by Archbishop Chapu who was ordained a bishop by—and I've got it back in my house. I've got the succession going all the way back to— we trace it to about the 16th century, and then, then they lose you know, formal track of it. But what a powerful moment that was for me, that imposition of hands, that goes back ultimately to one of those twelve who knew Yeshua of Nazareth. So that's why it's, it's not just an abstractly interesting idea. It's a very viscerally important part of Catholicism. Alright,
0: let's handle one more question. This one comes from Grant. He's a non-denominational youth pastor in Georgia. and He's got a great question about the Eucharist for you, Bishop. Here it is. Hello, my name is Grant Adams. I'm a youth pastor at a non-denominational church in Georgia, but I'm greatly drawn to the liturgy and teachings of the Catholic faith. Could you explain why it is necessary to use bread and wine as the elements for the Eucharist, and are there situations where exceptions can be made and other elements used.
1: Thank you so much for all that you do, Bishop Barron. Be blessed and continue to be a blessing. Thank you for that. Um, The answer is no, you can't use anything else. And why? Because Jesus used them. So, see, if, if we were just sort of manipulating generic symbols, so you were saying, you know, that the... The divine principle feeds me, the way food feeds me. the divine principle inebriates me the way wine does or something. then sure I could I could play with those. Look, I lived through a time, when I was a little kid in the 60s, people would say things like, Hey, why not use you know, Coca-Cola and, and Wonder Bread? Or, I mean, why not use the things that people really know? And, and then, more seriously, people would say, Well, how about parts of the world we could use rice, where that's much more common than bread, and we use you know, whatever the, the most popular drink in that culture happens to be. Wouldn't that be a way of enculturating the faith, etc.? Well, the Church has indeed entertained these questions, and the answer has been consistently no because the Eucharist is not a generic spiritual symbol right? that can be differently uh, enculturated. The Eucharist goes back to Yeshua of Nazareth, who, with that apostolic band I just talked about, gathered for this Passover supper and took bread and said, This is my body, and took the cup filled with wine and said, This is the chalice of my blood. We're not trading in Jungian archetypes or generic symbols. We're going back to him, to what he did. Um, how wonderful the Mass, you know, when you're doing the Eucharistic prayer and the, the priest goes into that description, we call it the institution narrative, the description of what Jesus did the night before he died. If it were a Jungian symbol, then we could just accent that in different ways. But it's not, it's the night before he died. Who's he? Well, the guy that was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is not a generic um, archetype of pure humanity or something. It's not Kant's uh, archetype of the person pleasing to God. It's this Yeshua from Nazareth who was crucified under Pontius Pilatus in the the fourth decade of the first century. Uh, That one, that Jesus, he took bread and he took wine. That's why we do it. Because otherwise, it becomes something under our control, something we begin to manipulate for our purposes. No, no. Go back to Paul now. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? Let me tell you what I received. And then he gives his version in 1 Corinthians of the institution narrative, that the night before he died, Jesus took bread. Good. That's Christianity. And that's why we use bread and wine.
0: I'd like to thank everybody who sent in all these wonderful questions, whether you're Catholic or non-Catholic, we'd love to hear from you. We always love receiving queries from our listeners. You can submit them via the website, askbishopbarron.com. Every episode we choose at least one question, but then sometimes we'll do these type of roundup Q and A's where we take questions from non-Catholics. Other times we do roundups from international listeners. And then one of the most popular ones is we take questions from kids. And so if you're a parent and you have a young child who has a question about God, theology, the spiritual life, send those in too at askbishopbarron.com. And we'd love to include them on the next episode. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.